So we'll be looking, continuing our sermon series on 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1, the whole thing. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came out to meet Samuel trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now when they all came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as mortals see. Mortals all look on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and Samuel said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and Samuel still said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And Jesse said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Jesse sent and brought him in. Now the boy was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said to Samuel, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then sent out and went to Ramah. Now, meanwhile, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. And Saul's servant said to him, See now, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command the servants who attend you to look for someone who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the evil spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you'll feel better. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me someone who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. A man of valor, a warrior, prudent in speech, a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey and loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, with a kid, and sent them by his son David to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul loved him greatly, 
and David became his armor-bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, and Saul would be relieved and feel better, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts may be an honor and a glory to you. Amen. So today's reading has one main message, and it's the only thing I'm driving home today, and that's that we have a religion of the heart. When God is choosing his anointed king, he specifically tells Samuel, don't look at any of all that external nonsense. I look at the heart. And I can tell you that the religion of the heart is the key thing missing in so much of today's Christianity. Now, what do I mean by the religion of the heart? Well, we're going to learn as David's story where David's heart actually stands. But I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Religion of the heart is the deep and overwhelming faith in the fact that God loves me. Selfish, three apostrophe, three exclamation points, me. That each believer needs to have. Because that is David's religion of his heart. As we find in his stories, that David's strong conviction that the Lord goes with him is what leads him to fight lions and tigers and bears and, oh my, Goliaths, and lead a kingdom. It's the religion of the heart that gives David's psalms its power. We can speak about Saul having his demons and David calming him. Well, my friends, you want proof of the word of the Lord? Read Psalm 23 at a pagan funeral. Even then, it will quiet people's hearts. Even then, there's a deep abiding conviction that there was something in that author. And that is the key thing we need because there's no power of witness. There is no power in prayer. There is absolutely nothing without the conviction God loves M, capital E, me. Now, the sad thing is we've hidden this. Oh, we have buried it down so we don't have to face it. Some of this is just being the boy who was raised in the church, so it might come off as a little smart aleck, I'm sorry. But the one thing that always drives me nuts is the God loves everybody. Oh man, God loves everybody. He loves you, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. If everybody's special, ma'am, then no one's special. We throw God's love on every other person except for ourselves nine times out of ten. Because the one thing we do when we make God's love so darn universal that it never skips anyone out is we deny that it's ever allowed to get personal. There's no election. There's no sense that there is something inside my own personal heart that makes me different from another person and God loves me for that difference. There's also no mystery. There's no sense that God is sending out his son in a way completely different from how he's relating to the rest of uni the universe. No, it's just a big, warm, fuzzy feeling that hopes you do better next time. This God loves everybody stuff versus the idea God loves me leaves us with no accountability. Because if God actually loves you enough to send his son, and it's you, not the neighbor, you, well then you got to do something about it. 
This cheap God loves me is what's wrecking the church. It's what's wrecking society because you can have no personal responsibility. You can't have a transformation. There's no born again unless you say, God loves me, me, me. Because if you don't, well then the real thing is, who you are doesn't matter. If God just loves everyone anyways, then who you are doesn't matter. And that causes a whole bunch of little belief, or at best, a vain hope of fire insurance. I don't see that God loves me. Eh. But it also creates a really nasty religious paradox. Don't think I'm going just after the left here. We get into this paradox that if God loves everybody, we become needy children. We want to stand out and be special, get something for him to notice me. How many times have you in prayer? I know I have. Sat there and said, Lord, if you don't come down and answer me, I'm walking away. We try moral blackmail whenever we're praying. We try to live good lives. We give things away. We try to do good because the whole point is, is Lord, if you are up there, notice me, me, me. We run into the fact that if everybody's special, notice how needy that makes his children. And what's even worse, we get to animosity. We start to find that it's too hard to be holy. We'll leave that for the monks. And the sad thing about all of it is God never responds to that kind of faith. The only thing he responds to is knowing for darn sure. Whenever Jesus heals anybody, it's according to your faith, so be it done to you. And what's that faith? That God loves Y-O-U. Now this is something we all have to search our hearts for. This is where God looks. As 1 John says, if our heart condemns us. Can we really look down inside ourselves and say, God loves me in my unique personality? Well, that's where you get into all the messy stuff. Because if you really get in there and you dig deep, half the time I don't see it in myself. We've got to rely on God here. We can't get to a moral purpose or something where we're enriching God, where we can go, okay, this is the part of my heart that God loves. No, God's word is, I love you. And he also promises to give us new hearts and a transformation, a being born again that is real. And we'll see in David's life that this is the key to all power and all courage. It's God loves me that stands in front of Goliath. It's God loves me that sanctifies David after his twist and troubles. And it's God loves me that allows David to claim the promise that a Messiah will come through his kingly line and liberate his people. Now there's an objection from the worldly little infant Christians when it comes to this idea that God loves me, God can transform me. And that's that people are worried that we're claiming to be too holy. And the only answer to that is, this is all for God's glory. God picks us for his glory. God saves us with his power. He loved us first. That's what the cross and all the New Testament is about. So when the world says, well, hey, you know, or our own hearts say, you can't say God really loved you. 
When your heart says, no, not me, maybe the other guy, maybe everybody, but I can't take it for myself. We as Christians have one duty, and Christ calls it the best love there is, obedience. And I will push you here that when it comes to the words, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let me thump, people. This is why fighting it weakens us so much. Doubting Christ, doubting the Holy Spirit, doubting the Father's love for you is not as humble as it seems when you say, well, God loves everybody. When you say, I'm not special. When you say, I have to act all these religious things out to prove I'm more holy than the other person to be special. No. That stands against God's own words and against his actions. Doubt of the love of God is disobedience. Now, there's a lot of the Bible to read, and I can't pop it all in your heads. But Paul gives one thing when he speaks about this. He says, work this one out with fear and trembling. You should not go to bed comfortable tonight if you cannot say in your heart, God, you love me. I'm not asking you to tell him that you love him. That'll come later. But just that you can say, if Lord, I can't see it, but I want you to show it. This is where you should start. This is the whole beginning of the religion. This is your highest aim for your Christian walk every single day of your life. It is not repentance. I am sick and tired of hearing people preach repentance. You cannot repent into believing God loves you. You will repent and you will find him a cruel taskmaster. You'll be like Luther, finding new things to confess. You'll be like these people who think God loves everybody but are not really special, trying to earn his approval. But the point is, you have it. That must be internalized. And once you understand God loves you, that he gave his son, that while we were still enemies, he died for us. Yada, yada, yada you will realize that you can do no Christian work without this firm conviction. Because David's song, as we read today, the power is in his heart. And I would ask you, as I go through it again, to ask if this is something you can really believe God has for you. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down beside green pastures and leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the right path for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. My friends, your song can be that powerful. It will be even more precious to God because it will be your song. He's heard David's already. He enjoys it from David. But he's got one he wants you to sing. May you find the faith to sing it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you as a people who are called out. 
taking these steps because you have loved us, you have spun the universe, and somehow got us in this building here today. Lord, I would pray for anyone that is lacking conviction, faith, or belief of your fatherly love, that you, with a gentle and kind spirit, would walk with them, show them all the ways that you have been active. And Father, as I mentioned, some are prodigal sons. They've been living wild, and they need to turn back. But Lord, we know you'll run to greet them. And I pray especially for those older children, those who feel they have labored in the pursuit of holiness, of righteousness, and have gotten nothing. Lord, forgive us the spirit of thinking you are stingy, that you are a mean father. And Lord, we must confess, let us confess for those saints, and may you lead them also that we have been foolish. For as you come out and parlay with us, you will show us that everything you have is ours. We have lived like peasants, well, son of the king. Provide your church, especially in this nation, that she may be a beacon to all the lost. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.